Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Rebecca Henderson to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Rebecca is one of 25 university professors at Harvard. She's a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a fellow of both the British Academy and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Rebecca's research explores the degree to which the private sector can play a major role in building a more sustainable economy, focusing particularly on the relationship between organizational purpose innovation and productivity in high-performance organizations. Thank you very much, Rebecca, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you, Fergal. I'm honored and delighted to be here. So can you tell us uh, by way of a little bit about your background and your current work focus? Sure. I've been a professor at a business school for over 30 years now. And through that whole process... I've been focused on the question of why large organizations have so much difficulty changing, even when they can see that they need to change. I was at MIT for 20 years, and uh, I was the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management most of the time that I was there, which was actually a coincidence, but it was wildly ironic because that's what I did and that's what I do. Work with firms like Kodak that can see they need to do things differently, but whoa, change is hard. And uh, I see my current work as a natural extension of that. I'm focused now on the challenges inherent in building a just and sustainable economy. I think there's enormous economic opportunity in addressing problems like climate change, but so many firms are struggling to move forward at the rate and pace that we need. So uh, so that's why I wrote the book. Fantastic. I often ask at the beginning of the interview, um, we face so many different environmental challenges, different challenges, social challenges. What in particular is on your mind at the moment, Rebecca? Oh, climate change. I mean, as you say, we face enormous numbers of challenges. Really, things are not great. Uh, We could worry about plastic pollution or the oceans dying or topsoil depletion or you name it. But the, the one that's on my mind is climate change. It is so hard to reverse. It's not clear we can reverse it. It's going to cause untold suffering. And we're still hurtling towards it far too fast. Yes, yes. It's an existential challenge indeed. And we come back to some of, some of, I guess, some of those questions uh, that underlie that and, and what we can do and what corporations can do, what different parts of society can do. What's the background to writing your book? And, and, and what, why did you choose the title? And, uh, and I guess the other question just linked to, to just setting this up is, is um, it's about capitalism uh, and it's also about corporations. And if you talk a little bit about the connection between corporations and capitalism. Sure. Um, I wrote the book because 15 years ago, I could not understand why firms were not actively pushing for sensible climate policy. You know, climate change is one of the few cases where nearly every economist on the planet agrees on what the policy should be. 
and agrees that it would be economically beneficial and where the policy would almost certainly make a huge difference. If we had really started to charge a price for all the harm that fossil fuels cause uh, 15 years ago, I think we would even now be most of the way there to a fossil fuel free economy. And I couldn't understand why firms weren't advocating for it. It seemed to be in their best interest. Uh, let's, you know, let's make sure the world doesn't burn. That would be really good. Um, why aren't firms storming Washington insisting? And some are doing that now, but 15 years ago, very, very few were. So in the way of academics, I started to teach a course. And I called it Reimagining Capitalism, Business and the Big Problems, because I wanted to have a chance to think through what, what's going on. Why aren't firms moving more quickly? What does it say about the whole system we live in? And I thought if I talked it through with the students, I might learn something. Um, I've now taught that class or versions of that class for over 10 years. And the book that I just published, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, is the summary really of what we thought we learned together. It's an account of why firms need to change, of how they need to change, and of how they made how they made uh, and how that might work. I chose World on Fire. You know, sometimes talking about the book now, people say, well, how did you know? And I say, well, it was pretty obvious. <laughs> so I, um, I chose the title to signal that this wasn't some kind of academic tome about what should capitalism look like. This was a book about action, about what firms need to do if we're to get ourselves out of the mess we're in. Yes, very interesting, very interesting. <clears throat> I, I don't know whether you're familiar with the quote uh, variously attributed to either Slavov Zizek or Frederick Jameson, which is, I think it's easier to imagine the end of the world than imagine the end of capitalism. <laughs> very interesting, very interesting. So what is your assessment of corporations today, Rebecca? Do, do you think they're fit for purpose? Well, what are some things that you think are going well and, and, and maybe what's not going so well? It depends what you think the purpose of the corporation is. If you think the purpose of the corporation is to make money for its investors, and that's its only goal, and more than that, the purpose of the corporation is to make money right now, this year, then I'd say corporations have been doing a pretty good job. If you think the purpose of the corporation is to help sustain a prosperous, vibrant, healthy, free society, and a living planet on which our children can live, not so good. <laughs> so, you know, it's at this stage in the conversation that people sometimes say to me, well, why reimagine capitalism? Why not just throw the whole thing out the window? Um, and certainly we know a lot of young people think, you know, the system is just broken. Um, I've come to believe that the that capitalism is the best shot we've got, that in its best form, it's an unparalleled source of innovation and productivity and growth. And we need the engine that is capitalism, or if you prefer, the tiger on the leash that is capitalism to, uh, to solve the problems we face. We, we, I don't think we'll address climate change without a massive mobilization of innovation right across the economy that will have to be driven by competition and, uh, and by the quest for private profit. So I think we, we have to keep capitalism, but we, we really need to change the purpose of the corporation. 
Um, we need to be very clear and ensure that every company understands that its purpose is much wider than simply making money for investors. Of course, firms need to make money for their investors. Most managers will get fired if they don't do that. But that's not the only purpose. And it's certainly not the long-term, broader purpose. And so I think we're in the middle of a shift that corporations haven't been living up to their most fundamental job by and large, um, and that we need to change the rules of the game and change the way that, that corporations are run so that they begin to do so. I mean, it's very interesting that you talk about the purpose of the corporation, which is which is very laudable, and I'd like to talk about that later. But look at competition in the United States. Market concentration has increased dramatically. More and more markets are effectively oligopolies. If you look at the stock market, vast sums have been spent on stock buybacks. The stock market is, is meant to allow companies to raise money, but actually more companies are taking more money out of the market via takeovers and buybacks. You look at the banking system, the cost of financial intermediation has not fallen one iota. We've had these financial crashes, the banks have been bailed out, and that's before we even look at the salaries of senior leaders in corporations. Oh, Fergal, you're, you're doing my job for me. That There's a huge difference between capitalism at its best, capitalism where you see real competition, the entry of new firms, new ideas coming up, where you see the creation of good jobs with real freedom of opportunity. I mean, capitalism in our best dreams, and sometimes it has looked like this, is a way to bring people that, you know, don't come from the right families and didn't grow up in the right place, but can still start their own firms and build a good life. Capitalism at its best creates great jobs that pay well, a real source of dignity and respect. Um, but, you know, in so many ways, that's not the capitalism we, we, have, we have now. Um, as you said, competition is, uh, concentration has greatly increased. We're seeing these very large firms increasingly at an advantage over smaller firms. Rates of small firm formations have fallen quite significantly. There's a lot more entrepreneurship, at least in the U.S., than the, a lot less entrepreneurship, at least in the U.S., than there used to be. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence that one of the reasons wages have been under so much pressure is because these very large firms are effectively kind of monopolists in, you know, if you want to work, you got to work for me. One lovely paper I saw suggested that Facebook employees, for example, are dramatically underpaid because, like, where else are they going to go? <laughs> um, so... So absolutely, we have a capitalism that is not working as it should. And, and let me throw into this, I think, a really important issue that you didn't raise, which is in a genuinely free and fair capitalism, the firms do not get to set the rules of the game. Um, you know, I, I'm British and female, so I'm, I'm not very good at sports analogies, but here goes. It's as if we told a rugger team that, yeah, just go ahead and pay and play and we'll get rid of all the referees. You know, you want different rules? Fine, make them up. We've allowed firms to pour money into politics. And um, that's not a good thing. It's, it's not a good thing for all kinds of reasons. It, it was good for the, some of the firms in the short term. It's like they're on a drug they can't get off now, but it's terrible for the system. 70% of Americans think the system is rigged against them worldwide. 
something like 80% of the population, this is a new survey just out this morning, 86% of the world's population thinks capitalism isn't working. Well, one of the reasons they think that is because we don't have the guardrails in place that we need to make firms behave in the kind of best capitalistic way. So that might be antitrust policy. It might be, just to bring us back to climate change, decent climate regulation. um, We need the rules of the game, and we've let companies set them for themselves, and that's a huge problem. Very interesting. I'd like to take that point up. Very interesting. When is the era, do you think, where capitalism was at its best? In the U.S., capitalism was at its best in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. There was a sense that firms had, yes, the responsibility to make money, but as importantly, a responsibility to provide decent jobs, to be uh, strong contributors to their community, and to play their role working with government to build a strong and healthy society. A lot of important social legislation was passed during that period, much of it with the support and help of the private sector. So there was a sense that business was part of something greater than itself, had to play play its part in building a functioning society. I have the sense that right now something like that is the case in Germany and Denmark and in other parts of Scandinavia. Not that it's utopia, but that business has a much broader sense of its role in the world and the way it needs to work with its employees and with business. Something like this is also true in Japan, one of the most equal societies um, in the world and one of the most prosperous, where many Japanese firms see themselves as having multiple responsibilities and as being just a part of society. Um, Again, I I don't mean to seem utopian, but this is not like a crazy, wacky idea that firms could have a broader purpose and that capitalism could work for everyone. Of course, it's hard to generalize, but I think it's fair to say we've seen, by and large, even in the markets you mentioned, not not to mention the United States in particular, but increased corporate power, increased marketization, reduction or elimination of regulations. This is clearly still the direction of travel. What do you think is the root of this, Rebecca? It made so many people so much money in the short term. I mean, who would, what business person wouldn't like to be told your only job is to put your head down and make money by any means that's legal? (laughs) I mean, it's very clear. And by the way, we'll make you very rich if you do so. So we put in place very strong financial incentives for firms to behave this way. Many people got very rich. And, you know, once you've become very rich, two things happen. One is you tend to believe it's you. I suspect I would too. And secondly, you begin to think, well, this is a good way to run the world. I've created all these jobs, all these value, you know, don't don't take my money away. Everything is working okay. So I think it became self-reinforcing. And when you add to that the political dynamics, where in many countries this focus on very strong free markets, was politically sustained by forging an alliance with those who said, and too much government is bad. Why is it bad? Because it makes people who look different from you move in next to you. So that in many countries, the business sector formed an alliance with uh, with nativists. 
that created a political dynamic which further accelerated the move to less regulation, lower taxes, less investment in the public sector. I will say that I am hopeful we are reaching the limits of that trajectory, that the costs of that strategy are becoming so clear. I mean, the pandemic is really shining a spotlight on all the weaknesses in that model that I'm very hopeful we're starting to spring back um, and to swing back. I talk to literally hundreds of business people who see the limitations of this way of behaving, who are working hard to try and move their firms in the opposite direction. And I think you just have to look around to see that society is going, whoa, that was a mistake. Let's try something different. So I'm hopeful this is really um, at least the beginning of a period of, of very significant change. You talk in the book about uh, the, the business roundtable in the United States uh, last year, um, a statement on the, the goals of corporations and not just being financial and so forth. Um, how inspired should we be by that? <laughs> moderately inspired. It's not unimportant. For many years, business stuck to the idea that maximizing shareholder value was its only purpose. To have one of the largest business associations in the US, containing some of the largest companies in the world, say in public, hmm, maybe our purpose is broader than that. That's exciting. It, of course, only means something if it's followed up by action, but those firms took the risk of at least exposing themselves to a great deal of public criticism if they don't move. They signaled to their employees and their customers that they were thinking of doing new things. So, yes, it's only talk, but often talk is a necessary first step. So I think moderately excited about the BRT statements. That's, that's what I would recommend. Yes. And also, I think you mentioned Larry Fink's letter to CEOs about the you know, companies serving a social purpose. I think Larry Fink's most recent letter, the one he published just at the beginning of this year before the pandemic hit, is actually very important. He's been sending out these letters for three or four years now. And the first time he did it, I got all kinds of phone calls from CEO friends I know saying, Uh, Come on, Rebecca, he doesn't really mean it. He doesn't really think firms should have a broader purpose, does he? Uh, Which I thought was hilarious. But this most recent letter, it was much more specific. And Mr. Fink said, if you do not come up with a coherent plan for responding to climate change, if we are not persuaded that you're thinking seriously about this issue in the course of your business, we will consider voting against your board. How can you say that? How can I? How can Larry say that? No, that that's a, 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 such a positive, inspiring thing. Oh my goodness! For someone like me, that is so positive and inspiring. And, and let me Rebecca, tell you, Rebecca, if you look at the history, Black yeah. proxy voting record, you know, it's voted consistently against all climate-related resolutions. So, what does it mean for him to say that? What it means is he's thinking about getting serious. What it means is his biggest customers, and I know because I've spoken to some of them, are getting really, really nervous about climate change. Then why aren't they? Why haven't they taken more action? So, look at um, 
look at Climate Action 100, which is, what, roughly third by some measures, a third of the financial assets in the world, systematically sitting down with firms, insisting that they develop a climate plan, beginning to withdraw and to vote against them when they do not do so. These are asset owners. Larry is in a bit of a tricky position because he is an asset manager. It's not his money. So he has to have all his customers in line if he's going to go into any company and vote against that company. These things take time. Remember, I told you I was the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management. That Larry Fink letter, it was like an earthquake in my world. I mean, business people saying, oh, my God, he might really do this. What do I do? How do I think about this? I think this is what change looks like. It looks slow. It's frustrating as heck. But this is a very positive uh, step. Is it too slow? Of course it's too slow. (laughs) Yes. Well, you're very optimistic, Rebecca. I mean, we talked about the business roundtable. I mean, JP Morgan Chase signed that. They've invested, what is it? They've contributed loans in excess of $260 billion to the coal, oil, and gas firms since the Paris Accord. You know, some people just say, well, they would say that. It's entirely hypocritical for JP Morgan Chase to sign that document at, at the same time, sustain the carbon economy to that extent. They're the largest in the world. They're the largest contributor financially. What does it mean? So I think it means they've put themselves in a bit of a tricky place. And indeed, when you look at how JP Morgan is behaving and many of the big banks are behaving, we're beginning to see withdrawal from oil and gas funding. The driver here is the demands of employees and customers. You know, a few years ago, one of the CEOs I know called me up and said, you know, Rebecca, that I think sustainability is just bullshit. And Forgive me. And I said, yeah, Fred, not his real name. I know you think that, but, uh, you know, I disagree. And he said, well, everyone I'm trying to hire thinks this is really important. You know, why don't you come on over and talk to us about it? So remember what we're trying to do. We're trying to change the mindsets of a group that is doing immensely well, that believes they are doing the Lord's work in maximizing profits, and we're trying to get them to pay attention to something that doesn't immediately affect their bottom line. Whoa, hard. So I think these kinds of statements, of course, often they're just statements. They're just greenwashing. Of course, they have to be followed up with action. But if you don't even have the statements, you don't make progress. I'm not sure what the alternative is here is the basic issue. I think we have to persuade the private sector to at least take climate change seriously, to at least stop lobbying against climate legislation. You know, I sometimes think if the only thing my book accomplished, I mean, this would be amazing. If if the book played some small role in making it socially unacceptable to lobby against climate change uh, regulation, that would be fabulous. We need to find a way to talk about the purpose of the business sector and to get consumers and employees and regulators and investors aligned against that purpose in a way that helps the private sector become part of the solution. So, of course, it's easy to say it's too slow and they're not doing enough. Absolutely. And it's important we keep saying that. 
but that but that's not the whole story i don't think no no it's very interesting you say that but surely what we actually need to do is change the law i mean right now all of this talk fantastic but actually the reality is the supreme court in delaware sees uh, investor uh, the, the, you know, the fiduciary role of investors, of, of corporations to maximize the return on, 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 on their investments. That's all that matters. Fundamentally, as long as the Supreme Court holds that view, and it does, all the rest is just talk, because actually the fiduciary role of a corporation is to maximize their profits, and shareholders can take them to court if they're not. So I'm going to radically agree and minorly disagree. So my radical agreement with you is absolutely we have to change the law. I wouldn't actually go first for the law on fiduciary duty, which I understand differently than you do. I would go for the law law. We need to change the law so it's not legal to throw greenhouse gases out the window at no cost. We need to change the law so you have to pay a decent wage and give um, disability uh insurance and sick days off and um, treat your people with dignity and respect. Absolutely, we need to change the law. It's the only way we'll fix the system. Now, do we also need to change the law in terms of how corporations are governed? I'm not sure. I think it would help, but that it's not the key, the, the only or the main key to the puzzle. Fiduciary duty, as I read the law, um, is care, candor, and loyalty. The only time you actually need to maximize shareholder return is under Revlon or Unical duties, which are only rarely triggered. Many people behave as if they're their only fiduciary duty, but actually they don't need to. It's become a convenient excuse. If we change the law such that firms have responsibility to multiple stakeholders, we run the risk of allowing them to do anything they want. Because how do we know if they're meeting their responsibility to their stakeholders? I would rather create a world in which it is in firms' economic interest to behave well. That's why we need to change the laws around how people are employed. We need to change employment law. We need to institute really strong environmental regulation. That's why the sort of penultimate chapter of my book is business, you need to lobby for a democratic, transparent, accountable government that can stand up to you. You need to pull your money out of politics. You need to understand you, you have to curb, curb power. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against changing government structures. Um, I have enormous admiration for the work of Colin Mayer at Oxford University or for um, the amazing people who founded uh, the B Corporation. And I think it might it might make some small difference and help firms that are trying to move in this direction. But the long-term answer has to be changing the law that controls the behavior of corporations, not just their governance. It's interesting. It's interesting. So you don't think the, the uh, focus on stockholder welfare, and I was interested because I, I did have an interview with uh, Joel Cohen at, at the B Corp, and he talked about this, and I was very optimistic about um, a lot of the thinking going on and rethinking about corporate purpose and so forth. And he said, well, exactly that. It doesn't matter as long as the Supreme Court in Delaware decides that, um, you know, in, in, and basically, uh, so I, exploring that, I, I saw 
this piece by uh, Chief Justice at the time, Leo Stryne, mm. and he basically said there's no leeway for judges to sanction board decisions that subordinate shareholder interests. And I just wonder, how can you expect companies to pursue ESG policies when there is potential, of course there's potential, that it's, they're not maximizing the shareholder returns? For two reasons. First, um, and we can talk more about this, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that pursuing the right kind of ESG policies for your business is a great way to run the firm, that there are billion-dollar opportunities in grappling with some of these social and environmental problems. But more fundamentally, I think what's really powering ESG and will power it in the long term is exactly the kind of Larry Fink dynamics we were talking about. That we live in a world where for good or ill, and it's super creepy, very small numbers of people control an enormous fraction of the world's wealth. And for them, they can't diversify away from the massive social and environmental risks we're facing by not taking care of people and planet more effectively. So, um, I talk about Hiro Mizuna in the book, who was chief investment officer of the Japanese pension fund, the largest pension fund in the world, $1.6 trillion in assets. And he came to the conclusion that for him, addressing climate change was in his fiduciary duty, that he had to generate long-term returns for his pensioners, and that if climate change was left unaddressed, it, it was going to be bad. And so he had a fiduciary duty to push the companies in his portfolio to address climate change. And if some significant fraction of investors start to believe that, and I think I'm seeing that more and more large investors believe that when you have the governor of the Bank of England saying out loud, this could be the largest shock to the financial system we've ever seen. When you see the kinds of estimated costs. Um, my favorite is my colleague, Marty Weitzman, who was an economist at Harvard and passed away, unfortunately. But he has this wonderful book about how at bottom, there's a 10% chance of ending civilization as we need it. And, you know, should we take that risk into account as we make investments? Perhaps we should. Uh, you're seeing more and more of that kind of thinking. I, I understand. I don't want to say, let's just sit back. This is going to be fine. The investors will fix this for us. But I think this is helpful. I think it puts more pressure behind firms to focus on ESG issues and gives us more room to bring in, as I said, the kind of regulation and political change that ultimately will be the long-term answer. Uh, very interesting. Very interesting. I guess um, talking about the role of investors, there are some very interesting case studies, lots of interesting stories in, in your book. Um, and looking at a few of the corporations and um, they have been acquired and there have been some of, some of the sustainability leaders or some of the cases, I mean, you talk about Cadbury's acquired, Aetna acquired, Unilever, uh, interesting story. And I would be interested to get your perspective, you know, to what extent was the sustainability strategy uh, did it cause, give rise to the uh, attempted acquisition and ultimately decision to try and change its domicile and, 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 and uh, the, uh, effectively the end of career of Paul uh, Pullman? And, and whether or not that says anything about um, the ability of corporations, of public corporations to follow sustainability strategies 
The Unilever story is super interesting. Uh, the activists went after Unilever not because of its sustainability strategy, which, in fact, I think there's widespread agreement now that that's been enormously beneficial to Unilever. They went after Unilever because Unilever, in some ways, was uh, was not making some tough choices. Uh, after they fought back the uh, takeover attempt, they divested the margarine unit, which you know, analysts had been telling Unilever, like, this is a ridiculous business. You should get out of this business. You can run it more efficiently and effectively for a long time. And I think what saved, but what saved Unilever, which I thought is super interesting, was exactly their sustainability strategy. Uh, it's fairly clear that the attack generated thousands of phone calls and um, consumer uh, pressure, uh, consumer unrest, and most importantly, it generated many, many calls to Warren Buffett, who was one of the funders of the people who were trying to take over Unilever, and he backed right off. So I actually think the Unilever example is, a, is an example of change of how these new strategies can strengthen companies in the face of raiders and activists. That said, Fergal, I am so with you that if we could find a way to slow down activists and raiders so that firms that are investing in the long term and really trying to do the right thing are, are not vulnerable when those investments maybe reduce short-term profits, that would be well worth doing. I think that's something that the ESG metrics could help with, that when you can explain to your investors why you're making investments in your employees, in environmental um, in environmental projects and strengthening your supply chain, and you can show them the data on that, that that will, will really make it much easier for these firms to survive in the competitive market. As I'm sure you know, there's some interesting preliminary evidence that firms with strong ESG commitments are weathering the pandemic storm much more successfully than their conventional rivals. And the thinking is that they're much more resilient that the kind of commitments they've built up with their employees and their supply chain mean that it was much easier to pivot, uh, to innovate in the response to the current emergency. And that, I mean, th this is a number I'm hearing from investors <laughs> that, oh, I see the ESG firms are doing better in the pandemic. So I, I think we're, we're in the midst of super hard period of change. You know, the old way of doing things was so taken for granted. It made so many people so rich. It reminds me of Kodak when they were, people said of them, there was nothing more profitable that was legal. They owned the photography market. They had invented conventional film photography. And they really couldn't understand that the world was changing. I think we're in that kind of moment and firms are struggling with, whoa, this is not working. We need to shift. So I'm not surprised it's slow, which is not to say we shouldn't keep talking about what needs to happen and holding them to account and pushing political change. Of course we should. But I don't think the fact that change is slow means that it will never come. I think we can change this system. Yeah. You're, you're sitting, uh, you know, in, in a very close uh, to where it's all happening. So it's very inspiring to hear your positivity um, and optimism. Um, in, in your book, you write very thoughtfully about self-regulation. And there's quite a lot of content. Uh, you talk about that in, in, in detail and in various different cases and so forth. I'm just wondering, 
why uh, less, a lot less about actually about regulation. And I'm just wondering why that is. Yes. Um, it's because many businesses believe that self-regulation might be the solution to the problems we face. And so I wanted to write carefully about self-regulation to show that while it could be useful and was worth thinking about, it could not be the end solution. And that the only long-term solution was to be firms, for firms to be forced to do the right thing. And I suggest that there are two entities that could force firm to do the right thing. The first is the capital markets. And we've already talked about how maybe uh, capitalists starting to see that these big systemic risks are a problem will force firms to address them. And then the second is, is government. And I didn't talk so much about regulation because I thought the case I was really trying to make was you needed a government that was democratically accountable, capable, and responsible to balance business. And that talking in detail about particular regulations, I, I talk a bit about climate change and stuff, but the, the key point was stop bashing business. Stop flooding it with money. Let it really represent the, the people, and we'll have the balance that we need to build a better society. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Finance, uh, Rebecca, we talked, we touched on it a little bit. What needs to change? Oh, timeframes. Please give me longer timeframes. Um, the whole system is set up to reward short-term performance. And what's interesting about it is even people who acknowledge that, that, you know, if you, you, you can say all you like about I value long-term returns, but if you pull your money out of a fund, if in six months performance goes down, and if you pay the fund manager on the basis of six-month or yearly performance, they will focus on the short term. <laughs> That's just the way it is. So this is a fundamental change in how asset management is structured. Um, and I've, I've spoken to many asset owners primarily big families that really want to make sure their money is, is doing the right thing about how to change incentives around the people who actually manage their money. It, it's hard. It turns out, Fergal, there's this psychological bias. I don't know if you have any savings and if you do, if they're in the stock market, but when the value goes down, there seems to be this like, oh my God, I've got my money in the wrong place, got to pull it back. And so that makes it hard for firms that want to make these kinds of long-term investments. You have a kind of worse before best, better problem, right? Which is, okay, I'm going to pay everyone more and that's going to make them more productive and they'll, be, they'll do better work with our customers and it'll be good for the company in the long run. I mean, Doug McMillan at Walmart did that. He, uh, he put $3 billion more dollars into paying his employees better because he thought he was underpaying them and it would be great for the long term. And he nearly got fired. The stock fell by, I forget, like 25% or something. I mean, it turns out it really was great for Walmart in the long term. But um, this is such a central issue. We've built a system that focuses on me right now. Is it good for me? Do I make the money right now? And we need to move the whole thing. So it's about, is it good for us? 
in the long term, or at least that we hold those two things in intention. So there's a lot of exciting work going on in finance to think about how would you shift the time frame? How would you really rewire finance so that it's uh, our ally rather than our adversary? Interesting. I mean, there are very interesting ideas around about new ways of taxation, taxing short-term holdings more than long-term holdings. Exactly. Yeah, transaction tax. Um, and, and can we really make that work? It turns out that, as I'm sure you know, the details of making that work are really tricky. But that kind of policy is clearly what we need. So you support that? You think that's a good idea? Um, policy in that direction. It, it, it turns out that I won't bore you, but if you simply say the people who hold the stock for longer pay lower tax, that doesn't fix the problem because the finance people then immediately go and invent an instrument, which is you really own this stock, even though you don't really own it. So you can avoid the tax. And so you have to go further back up the chain to make sure that those kinds of policies really work. But am I in favor of a policy like that that would work? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. I mean, it seems like the history of the corporation, certainly the United States, has been one of extending its powers and in in quite uh, eye-opening ways over the decades. I mean, I guess since the 1880s, since it it, it received uh, some kind of notion of personhood, um, increasingly corporate power. You start to see um, in the trade negotiations now taking place these ideas that multinational corporations would get to sue governments uh, and so forth. I mean, it's, got, it's gone quite far. Um, the one that really bothers me, as you know, is corporations are persons for the purpose of political speech. So this is the one I know about. I, I don't know anything about trade, so I, I can't really address your question. But in this country, at least, you know, as I understand it, free speech was originally about everyone should be able to speak up and, and say what they think. But a world in which I can have a little tiny megaphone and the corporation can build a speaker that is the size of the Empire State Building and for free speech. I mean, like, what is that? Um, and the systematic um, uh, pulling back of the right to sue. So many employees now are forced into arbitration. They have to sign non-compete clauses. I mean, to your general point, do corporations have too much power? Absolutely, they do. We have a concentration of wealth and power that is inherently dangerous. Even if some of the people with money and power want to do the right thing, I don't think societies work well depending on people to do the right thing. I think we need to rebalance power. And I believe, and this is the point at which you can say, oh, come on, Rebecca, you're really quixotic with this one. I think it's in business's interest to reduce its own power. That there is so much anger that we are at risk of social breakdown. I mean, I know that sounds like hyperbole, but uh, my husband is an American historian. He's just finished a book on race and polarization in American history. And I'll never forget a year ago, he walked into my office and he said, you know, Rebecca, the stuff that's in the papers now, the partisanship, the degree of hatred, the failure to agree on common facts, that reminds me of the newspapers I've been reading 
from the two, three, four years before the American Civil War. And, and I don't have to tell you how dangerous climate change is. I mean, climate change is going to upend our entire civilization if we do not address it and cause untold suffering to millions of people. It's not good for business. It really isn't. So my quixotic view is that business should come to understand this. And the reason I don't think it's entirely quixotic is I meet many business people who have discovered this for themselves and are trying to change things. It's, it's interesting you say that. It reminds me of, I, I don't know, CEO of one of the banks during the financial crash 2008, and he said, well, he, he, he gave various arguments, he said, but he said, you know, when the music plays, you've got to keep dancing. Oh, for sure. How and could that we, uh, back how to could the we question that? Yeah. the systemic aspects of these these issues but a a very interesting uh discussion what can we do as individuals do you think to help create a better capitalism so first and foremost uh push for a better politics push for rules to control corporations to address environmental and social issues secondly as employees we can push the firms we work in to move in this direction There's a super interesting thing, Fergal, which is if you can persuade a firm to take seriously the idea that it should take responsibility for all its impacts in the world, even if they just start by focusing on customers, and let's really think about the impacts we have on our customers, what is our purpose? If you can get that conversation going, in some circumstances, it's unstoppable. It releases so much energy and so much passion and so much anger if you backtrack that firms really start to transform. So real corporate change is often driven by people on the ground in organizations who say, you know, we could do this differently. I tell the story in the book about how Paul Pullman, who's now so famous, you know, he stands on the shoulders of people like Michelle Legens, who said, it's not okay that we're selling tea produced under these kinds of conditions. We must fix it. It was an individual. He wasn't senior. He didn't have a lot of power, but he was part of a movement that really changed a multi-billion dollar corporation. So, um, and last but not least, what can you do as a neighbor and a friend? We know that our behavior changes the behavior of people around us. Um, You know, we need an avalanche. We need an avalanche of political, social, cultural, and business change. And avalanches are started by a pebble. We don't know which of us is going to be that pebble, but I think we should, uh, we should try. All of us need to start pushing as hard as we can because that's where social change comes from. And change is slow until it's very, very fast. Well, it's interesting you say that. I think one of the, uh, the, the current moment we're in with the, the coronavirus certainly suggests that uh, ways in which we've traditionally organized the, our economic system are open to change and uh, maybe a quite radical change and a quite short notice. Um, I think that is probably something that is worth exploring. And also, I think more recently with Black Lives Matter in America, the public opinion has moved very, very quickly. And you're right, as you say, that some of these uh, questions and public opinion moves slowly and change happens slowly. But sometimes it happens fast too, as you say, and at the right moment. 
So can you talk a bit about your course at Harvard, Rebecca, and how it's been received? Sure. There are two courses. The first is called Reimagining Capitalism, Business and the Big Problems. And this is a course I first started teaching eight years ago, really to answer my own question about uh, what business might be able to do about some of these enormous problems. I started with 28 students, and uh, now it has nearly 300, which is about a third of the second-year MBA class. It's so much fun to teach, Fergal. I mean, it's a sequence of case studies about what firms can do, and the students start out super cynical. And as we go forward, and I keep bringing in CEOs and divisional presidents, and they, they keep saying, no, you can really make money, and you can really make a difference, and you'll enjoy yourself, they, uh, the whole mood of the class shifts. So uh, that's been a joy to teach, and that's the origin of the book. The second course... The dean has also asked me to take over the first year required course in leadership and ethics. We call it leadership and corporate accountability, and we try and expose students to the question of what are the responsibilities of managers. So while reimagining capitalism is all about the world is on fire, you must do something, here's what you can do, the required first year course is all about you know, the world is on fire and people are going to arrive at your door and say, do something. And the question is, what should you do? Can you do anything? Is it appropriate to do anything? Is your moral duty to maximize shareholder value? Let's unpack that. What is your duty to the institutions on which capitalism relies? So the the required first year course, which also includes some great material just about basic ethics, you know, do not do insider trading, do not fire people who are in protected classes, um, and some really tough questions like uh, Apple, should they release the data on their phone or should they keep a commitment to privacy? But we've also introduced a bunch of new topics, inequality, climate change, systemic racism, and really put them in front of the students in the context of, of real managerial cases. And we're asking, what should you do? How should you think about this? It's, uh, it's I think, going well. The students really want to talk about these questions. It's quite striking. And um, I think, I hope that the course will be helpful to other business schools that are thinking about tackling similar projects. So in some cases, companies have the power to change the rules, change the rules in their favor, so that on the face of it, they may be keeping within the rules, but actually they're not being a good actor. Um, are, they, are these situations you discuss? Absolutely, Fergal. I mean, you've, you've gone straight to the heart of the matter. And this is where we spend a good chunk of time at the end of the required course, at the end of Reimagining Capitalism. And indeed, it's the penultimate chapter in my book. I think it's such an important topic. The way we try and frame it is we ask, okay, you have a duty to your investors to give them decent returns. Does that imply that you have a duty to subvert the institutions on which capitalism relies in order to increase your profits? And uh, we use real life cases. Um, 
examples of firms that have attempted to change the rules or are are very active in lobbying. And we ask, you know, is this okay? What do you think? Again, and I'm a huge fan of the case method and of having people make up their minds for themselves in general. So definitely it's not about a sledgehammer. It's about exposing MBA students to these questions and asking them to think really hard about what their responsibilities are. I believe that uh, the deepest normative commitments of capitalism entail a uh, a responsibility to the institutions, that if you know that climate change is an issue and emitting greenhouse gases is a massive externality, that you should be doing all you can to support public policy in the space. And at the very least, not spending hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying to slow it down. The uh, The first case I ever wrote at Harvard 10 years ago was a case on the Southern Company, which at the time was the largest single lobbyist in Washington after business groups like the Chamber of Commerce. It was the largest, it was the firm that was giving the most money. And it was throwing money at climate denial and at preventing uh, climate regulation. And the case was all about like, is this okay? <laughs> what do you think? Uh, so that's a long answer to your question, but yes, yes, yes is the answer. So politically, we're certainly seeing the younger generation being more engaged, um, more committed, and uh, paying more attention to questions like sustainability for certain. Is that something that you see in your classes? The students have definitely changed. 30 years ago, when I started teaching, I would never have raised these kinds of issues with the students. They weren't interested. I wasn't interested. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, when I first started teaching sustainability, I would say I was squarely to the left of the vast majority of the MBA students. Um, there was a group of them that were curious, but by and large, they were like, you know, no, capitalism is fine. You know, it's not my job. Now, I would say half the students are to my left easily. They have moved so quickly. Just in the 10 years since I've been at Harvard, one of the biggest complaints about our Reimagining Capitalism course is that it's not left enough, that it's an ameliorist, middle-of-the-road, incrementalist approach to fixing the problems we face when the whole system needs to be torn down. That's still a minority view. I would say that's only about 3 or 4% of the students, but it is there, and it never used to even come up. When I asked the students in February, I asked the entire first-year class, is capitalism broken? And 50% of them said yes. Now, some may have said that because they are deeply concerned about the crony capitalism we're in the midst of, and I really get that. But a lot of the students said it was broken because it just isn't working. Now, as to whether that will translate into action... I can tell you that a much larger share of the students are going into uh, what they would describe as mission-driven businesses, as purpose-driven businesses. Students are clearly willing to trade off financial returns in order to work at mission-driven startups. I hear from many firms 
that it's very difficult to hire if you are not at least talking about these issues, whether that will still be the case as we come out of the pandemic and it becomes a buyer's market, I don't know. But the, you know, I would say at least half the students and more like 75% are really, really committed to this agenda. I think the reason why, Ferkel, is they see it as a clear and present danger. It, climate change to them is not some distant, maybe we'll get around to it. I still remember the moment when I was teaching a climate simulation about 18 months ago. And I finished the simulation and there was a sort of stunned pause because the students have been unable to reach agreement and had basically fried the planet. And a young woman stood up and she was pregnant and she said, you know, we talk about 2050 as if it's a long way away, but it is not. This child I'm carrying will be, you know, in the prime of his life when it's 2050. And what are we going to do? And oh my God, this is an emergency. So of course this is going to be hard. And of course it's difficult. And the work on the ground of actually changing firms and getting the right policies into place is brutally hard. But I think the world is changing. And yes, I, I believe the line. I think the younger generation is different. What's next for you, Rebecca? Oh, trying to help. <laughs> Working with companies to do this on the ground. Trying to build coalitions that are genuinely committed to change and to doing the right thing, that are accountable, and that push through to conclusions. So I'm, I'm trying to be a pebble too, trying to help in any way I can. Well, I wish you the very best of success with your work, Rebecca. And thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your research, your ideas, and your optimism for the sustainability agenda today. Fergal, thank you. It was a, a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>